I don't know, you just gotta keep going and hope that it gets better. It's pretty hard to see that sometimes. And I've certainly had my low points, but I haven't quit. And I don't, don't think now that I ever will. I mean, there's been times in my past, I'm not entirely proud to say that I've wanted to, because um, it has been pretty tough. But I don't think I ever would have really deep down, you know, when it came to it. And I think now I'm starting to realize more and more that although there's times that I want to stop, I just, I just never will. It's just never gonna happen. You know, my blood's gonna keep pumping through my veins until. And welcome to episode three of Paper Fox Radio. My name is Az Roberts and I am your host. It's the 31st of March 2020 and again I'm here in the front seat of our car parked on the street. It's late trying to get the intro for this episode done. I'm also socially distancing myself like the rest of the world. It's a strange old time. If running is my bread and butter sport I can uh, put on a pair of shoes, head out the door pretty much any time of the day I like and I get it done and I feel amazing. Sailing is uh, truly a sport where it's um, it's like a meditation. It's uh, it's good for it's truly good for my soul. And I could spend hours on the water just trimming sails, watching the wind fly across that foil, and just absolutely lose hours of my day and be none the wiser. We've had a number of races where our skipper will ask me you know how was the race and stuff and I'll be unable to say anything meaningful to him other than I don't know I was just watching the sail all day which is completely fine by me because the rest of the world goes by. If you're a sailor hopefully you understand what I'm talking about and if you're not a sailor I encourage you if you get the opportunity to take that opportunity and get on a yacht it is simply a beautiful beautiful sport. Today's guest is Seb Langton. Now, I've known Seb for a couple of years now. I sail with him on the weekends out in Sydney Harbour. Uh, and when we're not on the water sailing, uh, we enjoy a couple of pints together and a few giggles that go along with it. It is fair to say that I could recognise Seb's feet in a crowd just as well as I could recognise his face because he never wears shoes. He's a professional sailor and he's an entrepreneur who is always working on his next voyage or his next business idea. Seb's had a wonderfully colourful life, which has seen him sail many times around the world, finding himself floating in the middle of the ocean one moment, and then on his back in the gutter of life, looking up at the stars the next. He's a free spirit. Where most of us are bound by land in a 9-to-5 job, Seb is truly the captain of his own ship. He's creative, full of energy, and as you'll soon hear, he's a brilliant storyteller. Seb's story is about adventure, the entrepreneurial spirit, and bouncing back from when you get knocked down the hardest. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Seb. For those who don't know Seb, 
how how might I paint a picture of his sort of character? And I summarized it by if MacGyver and Han Solo had a love child and raised him at sea, that child would be Seb. That's, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> it's not bad. That is that is actually probably the most awesome description anybody's ever ever come up with. That's. Uh, that's that's cool. I yeah, like that. thanks, Ash. You got you got roguishness. I, I put it down. You got the roguishness. You got the charm. You've got the inv- inventiveness. You can pretty much get yourself out of any situation. This is true. This is true. I and there have been some close calls with some pretty interesting fixes as well along the way. So yeah, yeah. So um, so welcome, Seb. I'm stoked to have you on the show, and thanks for your patience with the audio. Yeah, thank um, you very much for having me. It's going to be great. Yeah. Um, so let's get started. There's a photo of you online that I managed to find yeah, of yeah. you as a boy. I think you know the one. Yeah, and you're yeah. on a yacht somewhere, and I'm guessing you'd have been about three or four years old. Yeah, that's right. It's actually the only photo of me as a kid. Is it? Yeah. I don't have any other photos of me as a child. That's the only one. It, yeah. As far as photos go, that's yeah. an amazing photo. Yeah. Um, Not much has changed. Huh? <laughs> a few more wrinkles. But my height's pretty much still there. <laughs> so Seb, to paint a picture, Seb's the height of a three-year-old boy. Um, and he's still wearing those overalls, which I'm... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very cute. Yeah. So what I'm... Um, like, were you raised on a boat? Uh, no, I wasn't raised on a boat. I was born um, just north of London in a place called St Albans in Hertfordshire uh, in the UK. And um, my father was quite an interesting character. He... Um, he actually decided when he was 19 that he wanted to be a sailor. So he um, he got a book from the library and proceeded to build a 30-foot yacht in his parents' back garden. Um, forgot to measure the distance between the two houses and it turned out that uh, the yacht just made it through the two houses with like an inch on either side, made the newspaper. And, you know, it was quite uh, comedy, but that yacht is still on the water today. and. Um, as a result of my father's passion, I ended up growing up in, in the UK, sailing you know, most of the time. In fact, I'd, I'd done nine crossings of the English Channel, I'm told, in my mum's tummy. So um, yeah, it's kind of, yeah, inherited, I guess, through my genes that I was gonna be in love with the ocean and in love with sailing, so yeah. Awesome, so why, why so many times across the English Channel? Uh, Mostly alcohol runs, I think. Um, you know. Han Solo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fastest. The fastest. The, the, fa- yeah. <laughs> the fastest ship. Yeah, it should have been called Millennium Falcon, but uh, it wasn't. It was called Gavotte, was my father's first yacht. Gavotte. And, um, yeah, we sailed back and forth picking up wine uh, in France um, to avoid that, which is... You know, what everybody did back in those days, you used to do these sort of regular trips across to France and overload the boat and sink it a few inches in the waterline just to, um, you know, supply yourself through Christmas and New Year. It was good. It didn't change. Yeah, I can remember doing trips all the way through into my early 20s on this, on a different yacht, but uh, still the same mentality. We'd go over to, to Cherbourg in France and sink the boat as many inches as we could and come back. Did you have any? Did you ever have any uh, close calls with uh, overloading it, getting a little too? <laughs> no, no, no. The, the uh, 
You can sink a boat quite a long way, I've discovered, with alcohol without having to worry about it too much. It just makes the journey home a little slower. Um, but there's, there was never any close calls. I mean, it's, it's you know, a day sail from England to France, so that wasn't really an issue. It was just, uh, it was just more the fun of going across, knowing what we were all doing, and the adventure of you know, going across to a foreign country and you know, creating havoc over there and running around in the supermarkets, jumping on the back of trolleys and running half the French over. And yeah, it was, it was great fun. I explained so much. Yeah. Um, so did you grow up like wanting to be a sailor or did you have other ideas back then? Or? Oh, I think, uh, I think the thing I wanted to be most when I was a kid was Batman. But um, yeah, I mean, I've got parents and I'm not from a billionaire family, so that, that kind of didn't work out so well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've always loved, in all seriousness, I've always loved sailing. I've always loved being out at sea. And the the adventure that it represents, you know, to me, it's complete freedom. The the idea that you can set off into the sunset, and it not really cost you anything to travel from one place to a to the next, um, and all the cool things that you can see along the way and the challenges it represents, uh, all of that is kind of romantic to me. So, of course, I've sort of continued to do it all my life, even though at times it's been a bit of a struggle. Um, I just sort of can't really live without it. Uh, it's like a fix. So, yeah, I guess everybody has their vices, and mine happens to be a really expensive hobby. But today, you're paid to do that hobby. Yeah. So, I mean, do you want to tell <coughs> us about like your current role and yeah, well, uh, one of your current roles anyway? Yeah, one of them. Um, I've uh, I've been sort of sailing on and off my whole life. I mean, I became a professional uh, yacht master when I was about twenty one I think uh, might have even been 20 but early on in my 20s certainly and um, you know I, w I was delivering yachts all over Europe and then you know I owned a couple of my own yachts um, you know I've sailed probably further than most people can fathom and um, you know that the paid roles have continued to sort of creep in here and there throughout my life I've sort of darted off into the tech world and Done a few other things, but today I'm I'm employed as a professional yacht skipper, captain, um, and I'm tasked with looking after a 62 foot yacht um, and sailing that around the world, basically wherever the owner wants it to be. It's my job to get it there on time and safely with the crew intact. So, <clears throat> a little bit of a quiz. I was going to save this till later on. Um, around the Earth, how many nautical miles is the Earth? I think it's roughly twenty-eight thousand miles around nautical the circumference. Miles. Yeah, yeah. And um, I read somewhere that you had sailed over a hundred thousand nautical miles. Oh yeah, yeah, easily, yeah. easily over a hundred thousand. I mean, it would be, it would be creeping up closer to 200 I should think by you, now. you need to update your LinkedIn profile yeah I probably do yeah no I, I've, um, <laughs> I mean it's always increasing right and, and you'd be surprised how quickly it racks up when you're just doing it all the time I mean this this year alone uh, we'll be clocking up more than 15,000 miles um, you know in our efforts to get halfway across the world 
from Australia to the Panama uh, because you never can sail in a straight line, right? I mean, sailing is, is kind of stupid, really, because you sort of aim the boat where you don't want to go uh, most of the time and you end up exactly where you want to go, um, which is kind of weird, but, you know, tacking back and forth, uh, you know, you're racking up almost double the distance sometimes mm -hmm. if you're, you know, going off to fun places like Fiji and Vanuatu and Bora Bora and Tahiti and Marea and, you know, Hawaii and, nice. you know, Galapagos. So you're sailing, you're sailing the boat, as I understand, to these locations and then you're the owner, the owner of the yacht will meet you somewhere and then you sail them around. Is that largely what happens? Yeah, that's, that's it. So uh, uh, I'm really responsible for the boat the majority of the year, uh, maintaining it, looking after it, making sure that it's provisioned, making sure that uh, you know she's ready for operations at all time, including all of her toys and and um, you know accessories. I mean, the boat's very well equipped with paddle boards and jet ribs and you know wakeboards and water skis and all this sort of stuff. So all of that has to be maintained and looked after. Uh, in fact, we've actually just bought a an inflatable trampoline for the boat which is pretty awesome nice um, but yeah all this stuff has to be maintained and the owner then flies out uh, for one week every sort of three months uh, one or two weeks every three months and uh, has his holidays with the kids um, and we have a, an amazing time you know cruising around some islands and catching some enormous fish and then um, yeah it's up to me to get her from that that place to the next. Nice. That's pretty much it. Yeah. And how much of that time you're spending out at sea by yourself? A lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, if if the owner's not around, I like to sail. I mean, I don't just sit there in harbours waiting for him to tell me where to go. The arrangement I have with the owner is that you know the boat is free for me to use whilst he's not on board. And so I tend to go from one country to another or I tend to sail extensively around that country, visiting all the islands or all the little bays and harbours that I can mm. in order to keep the boat moving and keep everything running smoothly. And also just for my own fun and adventures, you know, I love discovering new places and meeting new people. And to me, it's the best way to do it. It's mm. awesome. And um, what about time to think out there? Like you got a lot of time to think out there. Yeah, I mean, what, every what day, of, all day. What are you working on out there? Um, I'm actually building an app at the moment for the sailing industry. Um, one of the challenges with sailing from country to country is uh, the last mile, the, the sort of port guides, if you will, um, fine entries into harbours, things like that, and knowing what facilities are there when you get there. Uh, this hasn't been very well documented previously and uh, I've sort of decided to launch a digital port guide called digital global port cruising guide for for sailors so nice. that's that's what I'm working on now awesome yeah awesome tell us about um nomad nomad <laughs> war my first yacht so is that your yacht uh, it was yeah nomad was a 32 foot contessa uh, beautiful boat uh, yeah it's 
It was a great, great, great boat. Yeah, built and designed by Jeremy Rogers, who uh, was an ex-tank designer and ended up designing the Contessa line of yachts, um, probably the most famous of which is the Contessa 32 because uh, it famously came in through the 79 Fastnet, which was an absolute disaster of a race. And the young boys that came off the, the boat when they arrived back in harbour to the ensuing press uh, described their uh, time at sea as oh, not that bad and yet you know it was pretty atrocious for some much larger boats but they they seemed to just punch through it and be fine so um any other experiences on nomad that you want to share <laughs> yeah uh, so nomad um so it's built like a tank so in theory like it could pretty much just crash into anything it liked right <laughs> yeah yeah you'd think so but uh no, she was a very seaworthy boat and we had some great adventures on her and lots and lots of fond memories. And unfortunately, um, in one of my passages uh, across the Bay of Biscay, I was very, very unfortunate. Whereabouts um, is that, sorry? The Bay of Biscay is a, a stretch of water that's notorious for extremely bad weather between France and Spain in the sort of, uh, you know, bay between France and Spain. Um, and uh, I was about 400 nautical miles off the coast, uh, approaching the evening, fairly calm seas, beautiful weather, great sailing. And uh, the boat was just punching up and down through the waves and suddenly uh, I hit something in the water. Uh, we, we came down off the top of a wave, or I came down off the top of the wave quite harshly. Uh, you know, there was a bit of a jar to the boat, nothing that I'd have necessarily been too concerned about. Um, and certainly no strange noises or anything like that. But uh, looking down below, a couple of minutes after it happened, you know, I started to see the floorboards floating up, which was pretty alarming. Um, and that set in motion, uh, what ended up being a mayday situation um, we believe, myself and the insurance uh, investigator that, that sort of helped me through the process, uh, believed that what had happened was we'd, we'd hit a submerged container. I never saw the container or, or whatever we hit, so I can't be 100% sure, but the, the theory is that the, the boat was punctured uh, somewhere just in front of the keel. Um, in an area that you can't really get to from mm. the inside, so I couldn't see where the intake of water was coming from because of all the cabinetry that was there. Um, but I did everything I could. I, I got one of the sails and tried to follow the, um, you know, the hull by by passing over the sail over the top of the hull, so that the pressure mm. of water sucks against it. But that, oh yeah, that yep. that really uh, was ineffective. How did you even know to do something like that? Actually, I, I got that technique from an old sailing movie that I was watching when I was a kid. Um, I mean, lots of stuff you pick up sailing is... Because, like, in times like that, right, it's not yeah. like you get to practice stuff like that. Oh, no, no, no. And there's no, there's, no, there's no real guidebooks on it, right? I mean, people don't tend to like talking about their mistakes, which I think is a bit of a shame. Um, but that, that's something that you, you sort of experience through most industries and, and even in startups, you know, people are afraid of the word failure or afraid of, of 
mentioning the word mistake and it's wrong because that's what you what you learn best from mm. is, is knowing that you could have t- done things differently or better um, and certainly in this situation you know I, I applied every bit of knowledge I had and even the the uh, you know insurance investigator at the time commended me on uh, you know the efforts that I'd gone to to try and save the yacht I mean, did, was, did I was you living on it so it was my home you know I didn't yeah. want to see it gone but it, it ended up being quite a disastrous situation because I was so far away from land um, and although I had you know sort of the top safety equipment at the time um, sorry what year was this oh this would have been oh, going back a little way now it's 23 so it's going back 15 years ago right? so 2004 2005 something like that yeah um, wow. yeah so it was it was pretty shocking that uh, the boat uh, ended up taking on so much water it was down within about 38 minutes. Did you try and save any of your positions? Oh yeah, everything. I, I inflated the life raft and started throwing things into it, you know, played everything by the book, sent out my mayday. So what did you radio. try and, what did you try and rescue? Oh, <laughs> everything, everything on, on the boat. I mean, I was ripping out electronics, I was throwing guitars into the uh, in, into the life raft. Absolutely everything on the boat was, was going into the life raft. Uh, at the same time, I was trying to communicate with a ship that just was on the cusp of being outside of my radio range. Um, wow. they, they sort of heard a crack, they made a and, and decided to stop engines and sort of hover where they were. Yeah. Uh, and then managed to, through various back and forth over the radio, managed to establish where my position was and, and they then had to start turning around. So sorry, um, was this, did this all happen at night, I'm assuming? Oh, this is, this is approaching darkness, yeah. Right, so, right. so we were in the early evening. Uh, but I managed to um, stuff everything into the life raft whilst trying to, you know, follow the hull of the boat, trying to, you know, recover everything inside, you know, communicate via the radio, the VHF, uh, this mayday situation, uh, you know, get off my location and, and try and do what I could to, to uh, you know, keep the boat what do you afloat. Th- what do you, like, what's going through your mind at this point? Uh, well, nearly the boom at that point because uh, the boat <laughs> the boat starts f- you know flopping around right and, yeah and uh, you know I'm running around like a lunatic trying to are you scared shitless at this point oh it, fear like, doesn't really come into it it's more it's hard to describe you you know you, you realise there's something wrong and your your body and your mind is so focused on trying to fix things and trying to rectify the situation. Um, that you, you don't really think about how scary the situation actually is. Um, and certainly fear didn't come into my mind until the boat had gone down. And you know that was a bit of a situation in itself. I, I got to the stage where I'd recovered everything on the boat, the ship was on its way, it was still about three hours away from where I was, uh, having to make a turn and, and come back. Um, the water line was sort of hitting deck level. Uh, I was at the front of the boat trying to, you know, trying to follow the sail still over the hull. And um, as the, the water hit deck level at the bow, the boat pitched. Uh, the arse end of the boat came into the air. 
the line that was holding the life raft to the yacht snagged and pulled the life raft underneath the backstay as I was running to the back of the boat uphill. Um, I got sort of midships as I was enveloped in water. So that's the middle of the boat yep. for the non-sailors. That's right. Yeah. And then uh, pushed myself away from the boat for fear of being snagged. My boot was taken off one of my feet. And um, So what are you wearing? Are you just in... I was in my ocean uh, you know, MPX musto gear. Was this... Pre was this pre sinking or did you just oh, yeah, chuck no, this I was, on? I was that's what you sounded. I mean it's cold climate, right? Yeah, I mean, right. It's, it's not Australia where you're in shorts and t shirt half right. the time. I was in, you know, full sailing gear because Contessa thirty two is a fairly low to the waterline boat. So yeah. it's it's a wet ride in almost any conditions, you're still getting spray over and it's nice to be comfortable and sit there in proper gear. Yeah, yeah. I guess just from recent um from recent experiences, seeing what you say, like, <laughs> yeah, and you're, yeah. you, he's basically naked most yeah. of the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're lucky to have me in a pair of shorts, yeah. really. Yeah, but, but thanks um, for putting clothes on for today. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, it's very different when you're in um, those kind of climates, you, you dress more appropriately, I would probably say. But um, yeah, I got snagged um, midships, kicked, kicked my boot off, um, or my boot got taken off my feet and I pushed myself away from the boat to, to watch the uh, the life raft go underneath the backstay and the backstay take the thing in half. So everything I'd spent, you know, 30 minutes, 38 minutes... Rescuing. Rescuing was in seconds just folded in half and on its way to the bottom of the ocean. And I, at that point watching the name of my yacht across the uh, the back there descend into the darkness of the deep, I did start to uh, to become aware of the fear and the dire situation I was in. Wow. Because I was now swimming in the Atlantic Ocean, 400 nautical miles off the coast. Water temperature? Bugger all. Right. Like stupidly cold I've right. never been cold in my life and by the time the ship arrived I mean I was a pin bobbing up and down in the ocean right I mean, and tell us about the flare situation oh, rescue well, flares uh, miraculously you know having everything go down a few things pop to the surface as it does you know you get the, the you know sort of sea junk coming off the the boat one of the things that popped to the surface, of course, was the flare box because it was a sealed plastic container full of air. Uh, so that bobbed to the surface amongst a couple of bags that popped up that were obviously, you know, trapped with air pockets inside and, and light enough gear to, to not weigh them down. So I clambered over to these things, grabbed them, and was using them um, as well as my uh, life vest as a as a sort of buoyancy aid. Um, and that in itself is a hairy situation because you're sort of seeing odd things pop to the surface and naturally you know you're, you're there fully exposed to, to the elements and, and to the environment and you're thinking oh my god is that a shark is that a shark yeah is that a shark is that a shark uh is that a shark and you you, you just start going through that panic mode it'd be a terrible way to go hey? oh it's, it's it's awful but then after about 
I'd say couldn't have been more than 30 minutes you sort of give up with that line of thought and then you're like I'm, I'm pretty cold mm. I'm actually really cold and you know 45 minutes an hour creeps on and you're like I, I'm fully freezing like I'm like I'm in trouble mm. and uh, you know you can see the ship on its way crawling towards you it what does. sort of boat was it? a container ship container ship yeah. oh shit so it's just, you know, although they can move through the water pretty quickly, you know, in a mayday situation, you know, they, they were motoring pretty hard towards me, but, you know, they're still 26 miles away, which means at their speed, it was still an hour, hour and a half before they got to me. But oh, remember, man. they had to turn around as well. Big ships turn slowly. They do. It takes them a while. They cover a lot of distance whilst they're trying to turn. And um, not only that, uh, you know, hard to describe but getting on board or getting off and down to somebody in the water on a big ship is not an easy task so here I am in the water freezing the coldest I've ever been I was I mean I was I was frozen my hands were so cold I couldn't set off the flares anymore so I had to hold them with both hands and try and hit them against my knee mm. and one of them went off in my, sort of pretty much my face it just blasted straight in front of me and you know of course you're so lucky you've still got your vision and stuff hey? yeah yeah and the rest of your face for that oh, matter well and all my fingers and toes because I, I mean i was when they plucked me out of the water i was, was uh, semi-conscious was your face an improvement before you got shot in the I, face I, of I, yeah, i'm not sure you've seen the photo of me as a kid there's nothing in between definitely, so, you know. something something definitely happened with that flare getting shot in the face yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've still got my eyebrows. I'm, I'm still a man. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that was pretty pretty hairy. I mean, once the ship was alongside, I mean, it, it still felt like forever before they managed to get down and get across to me, pull me out of the water. Oh, and yeah. as I said, when they pulled me out of the water, I was semi-conscious. I mean, I, I, I don't remember the whole situation. I, I sort of remember being yanked out of the water. I remember sort of coming to, laying on my back, in the life raft, um, you know, they, they've got these sort of motorized life mm. vessels. Uh, then they, they had to crane that up the side of the boat. Don't remember any of that happening. These are massive boats, eh? Yeah. Oh, mate. Man, like we've sailed yeah. past them on the harbour. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. Huge. And they're lowering these things from, yeah. You know, Which are big boats in themselves, right? They're, yeah, they're escape pods. Or oh, they 30 foot long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You as know. big as your yacht. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, they're huge. And, and this thing was enormous, you know, yeah. bloody great thing. Uh, then they rushed me to the medical bay. I came to in the medical bay of the yacht, uh, confused as to what was happening. I was like, where's my clothes? And they'd obviously taken everything off me, wrapped me in a, a foil blanket. Yeah. Um, you know, there was all my stuff in the corner, I was told, when the captain came in to see me. Um, and... Uh, yeah, it was just, it was a really interesting time period in my life where I learned an awful lot about how things can change really without any of your ability to control the situation. I mean, it's not like, it's not like I could have done anything different. You know, I mean, if I'd set off a few minutes later or, 
you know, sailed a slightly different course. Yeah, sure, I might have missed the container, but there was no way I was ever going to see it. These things float mm. underneath the surface, and as I said right at the start, you know, I'm not even a hundred percent sure it was a container. I mean, it could have been literally anything floating under the surface yeah. that I hit. I was out running with um, our mutual friend Jono this morning, and um, we were talking about the container situation. Do you know the number? Like, there's supposed to be some crazy high number of containers that get lost off container ships. He oh. said it's a stupidly high amount when you consider it. Like, oh, I, I mean, I know that they because the ocean's littered with containers. Hey? Oh, hundred percent. There's yeah. so many of them out there. But remember, at the same time, the ocean is so massive. Yeah. Uh, and most of them sink straight to the bottom. You know, they fall off a, a ship. They're heavily laden, and they just, you know, they get damaged in the process of falling off, and they're at the bottom of the ocean. You yeah, know. sink like a stone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, occasionally, you know, they they they're well sealed. They have air pockets in them, and unfortunately, those air pockets make their way to the one corner, and yeah. that becomes a pyramid underneath the water, right? There... And they point up. Um, is, there a, is there a term for the, um, maybe I'm just imagining something, but is there a term for containers that are submerged or is it just submerged container? As far as I know, it's just a submerged okay. container. I mean, there's no there's no specific term that I'm immediately aware of right now. No, but um, it's all good. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's just one of these situations that you, you can't really avoid and you've just got to man up and deal with. And, and that was certainly a massive learning point in my life to, to realize that things can change without your control and you've got two ways of dealing with it you can either sort of panic and and you know lose it completely or you can man up and get get the job done and I'm I'm lucky really I mean I, I survived something that a lot of people wouldn't have for sure. And um, it does stick with you. I mean, I'm still a fun, happy, go-lucky mm. kind of character. Yeah. And it doesn't really affect me. And I mean, I, and I don't, I'm not ashamed of what happened or, uh, you know, anything that I did um, at the time. I am sad that I lost Nomad and I'm sad that it happened because I loved that boat and I loved all the memories that I had on it. Um, you know, with me, with one of my first girlfriends, and um, yeah, I mean, there was just there was a lot of happy times. So mm. it's, it was a shame. And she was a beautiful boat. Wow, so pretty, so wow. pretty. I would have loved to have her had her today. I mean, it's just a fantastic little thing to have. Where do you think your ability to act cool under pressure? Because I've seen you, I've seen you on our boat that we sail on yeah. on the weekends. And your ability to just be like, when a situation occurs, you're just straight in there to like, it's, it's your second nature to actually go and solve the problem. And you don't even, it's almost like you don't even, you don't lose time faffing about worrying about it or anything like that. You don't get lost in the hype or the stress of the actual situation. Cause when you're on a boat, yeah. like shit's pretty dangerous, right? You've got water all around you and stuff can go pear-shaped really freaking quick, right, as we've just established. Yeah. So where did that come from? Is that just years of being on the water or...? I, I don't actually... Was I your old actually, man like that or...? 
I mean, my old man was practical, you know, he, we, he could fix anything or build anything, you know, like anything he put his mind to, he could do. But I'm still aware that my dad has fears, you know, I, I know my dad's slightly afraid of heights and things like that. Um, but I, I don't know why I'm like that. I, I don't, I don't acknowledge danger if there is a situation that calls for me to, you know, rectify a problem. Like, you know, when the yacht was hit or when I hit something with, with Nomad, you know, there wasn't a second that went through my mind that I can remember where I was like, oh, panic. Mm. You know, it was just a lot of people that do, right? I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to do that, I've yeah. got to th- and then this happens, and then I've got to do that, and I've got to respond to the radio call. I mean, it was all very systematic, and I mean, you've you've seen me as well on, on Rod's boat. You know, when when stuff happens, like you know, we lost the um, uh, the, the steering, steering uh, going round a mark uh, with all these other boats trying to round this mark at the same time, and. Uh, you know, one of the crew members I remember ran downstairs and started making a very panicky, rushed uh, radio call, VHF call for help. Um, you know, and everybody started sort of running around trying to solve the situation, which was actually pretty easy to, to rectify. And um, once we got everybody under control and just hove to the boat, it was a really calm situation to, to solve. Mm-hmm. You know, we pulled out the emergency rudder. And, tiller and put in in the emergency tiller and we we sailed her back to mm. to the port you know there was there was nothing to actually get dramatic about um and i think that's why rod uh, the owner of the yacht that we we race on together loves me being on board so much mm. because he's seen me countless times in situations uh you know get the job done without that need to panic or or you know um, get hysterical I mean I just I'd seem to just disappear down below and and have a fixed up we've fixed engine issues we fixed steering issues we fixed you know halyard issues mm. you know sail issues I mean everything that you can think of has been which is a real out. which I think is part of your unique Charms the wrong word, but like, like you said, you're 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 a fun guy, and you're kind of a roguish character. Like, rogue's probably one of the better words, but when shit needs to get done, you don't fuck around. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the most surprising aspect to me. Uh, I've noticed this a lot in my life that because I, I'm never really serious about life in general you know I make fun and make light of almost every situation I you know I feel that (laughs) (laughs) I mean you know people often sort of think oh you know this guy's just a joker or you know does he really have these skills that he he talks about does he really you know is he really able to get the, the job done but then there isn't a single person that I know that has sailed with me or that has experienced me in those extreme situations that hasn't turned around, sat back and gone, hmm, 
wow, actually, this guy kind of knows what he's doing and I want yeah. him around. I mean, I've never had a yacht owner um, or, or a yacht captain ask me to leave a boat. Mm. Um, and I pride myself on that aspect of, of my life. You know, these, these guys want me around because I'm good at what I do and I'm good in situations that other people fall apart in. And, and a lot of these guys have seen that. And, um, you know, some of them in particular have even said, look, you know, if you, if you ever have a call to, to, to need to impress somebody, take them out on a yacht, mm. you know. I mean, one of my very good friends who's an entrepreneur, who's one of the first entrepreneurs I ever encountered, he, uh, he sailed with me uh, from Hamilton Island back to, back to Sydney. And, you know, we got into weather on the way down and, you know, he saw me handle it like it was nothing. Which, like what's, what's weather? Like to put it into perspective. Oh, look, weather's different for everybody. Um, you know, stuff that scares yourself yeah. or others is stuff that I don't even blink at, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, I've, yeah. I've been through some pretty big storms and... Like Oscar Wilde says, you know, character is built on mountaintops, battlefields, deserts, and oceans, right? You know, mm. it's one of his sort of famous quotes. I've probably sort of got the order wrong, but okay. essentially what he's trying to say is, you know, challenge is really what builds character, and, and there is no more challenging environment than, than to be in extreme situations. And you only find those extreme situations in you know, mountain tops, deserts, oceans, battlefields, you know, the, these places are where you're really gonna test somebody's salt, whether they can make it through something or whether they fall apart. And I've certainly been on boats in my time where I've seen grown men, you know, end up with their, their head in their hands sobbing yeah. because they can't deal with it. Um, you know, I've been in, in situations where you know, I, I think the boat has sort of spent more time underwater than, than afloat because of the, the waves that are literally just coming over the boat each time. You Not know, the boat would pass over one yeah. and, and pretty much just go through the next, you know, this whole ocean of water just coming down the deck. I mean, I've had I've had the uh, the whole sort of spray hood ripped off the top of a boat and me end up sailing with uh, you know, sort of thing. Well, with with dive masks, <laughs> with a dive mask on, because you know, you've got dive masks, not ski masks. On yeah, a yacht. yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I hate to correct you on your terminology there, but yeah, yeah the concepts the same. Yeah, yeah concepts exactly the same. I, I had mean, trouble I, walking around on deck. Yeah, and my ski boots. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I don't know why it's so slippy. <laughs> yeah, but uh, no, I mean, yeah, I, I, I had literally got this this dive mask on so I could see. Yeah. Because there was just that much water coming over the deck and going all the salt going into your eyes, um, yeah, it was just it was crazy. But you know, th this is what happens. You know, you, you can't spend a lifetime at sea and not experience weather. Mm. Um, if you do, you're not really sailing. Mm. And I can definitely say I've been sailing and I've been through not. I haven't been through it all. Never, never able to say that. But um, 
I've definitely been through stuff that has raised a few of my eyebrows occasionally. <laughs> um, and they're not easily raised. No, not There's not some in things that will raise your eyebrows, yeah. but not when it yeah. comes to the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I've, I've, yeah, so weather is different for everybody. And, and certainly, you know, when you put someone in a situation where they're a little bit um, overwhelmed or uh, afraid and you have somebody who's rock solid, just calm as, you know, calm as anything, just handling everything that's thrown at him. Obviously, that that's a, a situation where you're going to shine, and that's mm. that's really why my good friend Lloyd said, "Look, you know, it's the most impressive situation I've ever seen you in. You know, you mm. just you're in your element, and I, that is definitely my element. I, th I think that's um, yeah, that's true for." That's true for a lot of people, right? When you see people in their element, they just they just shine, right? Yeah. yeah. And yours is definitely on the water. Yeah. Um, you're on land at the moment. You're about yeah. to take your next voyage, um, <clears throat> and you're living in a garage, in the inner west. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm um, I'm living in a garage in the inner west. Uh, this wasn't entirely my own doing. Um, unfortunately, a couple of years ago. I was uh, running a startup uh, where I'd invented one of the smallest remote GPS tracking products in the world. This is Pod? This is Pod. Um, it was a company that I very much loved. The, the product was invented uh, in the name or in memory of my, my beloved cat, Rango, who died. Um, where was Rango? Was Rango in Sydney? Yeah, Rango was in Sydney. Rango was... Um, he was my 30th birthday present uh, and he was an incredible cat. Everybody loved Rango. He used to come up to, to the office with me um, in my first startup here in Australia. And, and that was Winbox? That was Winbox, yeah. yeah. Yeah, a payment gateway that I invented to negate the need to discount. And yeah, he was a great little man. I mean, he used to stay up late at night with me and <laughs> we used to just play through into the early hours of the morning and you know, he used to ride on the motorcycle with me occasionally and he was just he was a cool little dude. And unfortunately, um, you know, as is part of some cat's lives, you know, he was a little adventurous and I think he got hit by a car. I don't actually know because I never found him. But I was distraught for for like three days. Um I, I mean, I was destroyed, absolutely destroyed. Anybody who's a pet lover um, will always have one pet that is just their entire world in their life. And Rango was definitely that guy for me. He was, he was my entire, entire world for years. He did actually become my best friend for a long time. And when he went missing, I was absolutely devastated. Um, How long had you had him? Sorry. Oh, years. Yeah. Years. And uh, yeah, through a lot of difficult times, you know, the wonderful thing about a pet is you, you can turn up and it doesn't matter what state you turn up in, drunk, sober, angry, upset, you know, happy, you know, tired. They just love you. 
they're just happy to see you. You know, no judgment, no nothing, just, they're just awesome. And they immediately put a smile on your face. You can't, you can't go into a room with a pet that you're in love with and be upset. It's just weird, right? Mm. I mean, Rango, every day, mm. used to run up to the top of this like five foot scratching post I got for him. And he used to sit on the top, <laughs> looking all like energized and excited. And we used to have these boxing matches you know, just me and him, you know, I'd sort of shadow box around him and he'd get his paws out and be sort of shadow boxing with me. And then he, he had this monkey from Taronga Zoo, this like magnetic handed monkey. Yeah. And he would play fetch. He would run off and grab his monkey, leap up to the top of this uh, scratching post and I'd, you know, he'd drop it and I'd throw it anywhere in the room and he would just... He would launch himself off the top of this scratching post and go and grab it. And, you know, it would be like that for hours. And we'd just have this great time um, until he got tired out and then he used to pass out and I used to go back to work. And it, it was it was kind of almost like that every day. We, we'd just end up doing something hilarious. Or I'd just watch him while he, he like, all these little birds used to land on my balcony, you know, the little rainbow lorikeets. Yeah. And man, did he get obsessed with those things, yeah. you know, the little chattering mouth that he, um, he had, you know, and he's, he's there with his best stalking moves. And I'm like, dude, there's a, there's a balcony door. It's, it's definitely shut. You, you, you know, there's no, Daddy. but that doesn't matter. You know, just eyes like full focus on these little things. Um, never caught one, obviously, but uh, it was just brilliant to watch. So, so entertaining. But when he, he went missing, it, it killed me and uh, I spent the first sort of day just completely devastated printing off posters like going around the entire neighbourhood I mean there was literally a picture of Rango on every single lamppost I mean mm. it was it was kind of crazy um, but I was I was crazy I was I was distraught I needed to find him and during the three days uh, that he was missing I I got angry and I got upset and I started trying to think of ways that I could have done things differently, how I could have avoided this situation from happening. And um, I started thinking about the fact that, you know, I was a sailor and a pilot and I, I know GPS systems quite well and I decided that I already did a pretty good job of... Sorry, you're a pilot as well? Yeah. I yeah. had no idea about that. Yeah, I can fly the odd plane. Handy. Yeah. yeah. So you know. can... I got close to Batman, right? But not, yeah, not quite. Awesome. So the old lift, the yeah. lift principle was pretty familiar with. You. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, look, I, I ended up sketching up some designs for this GPS tracker and decided that that right then and there, that's what I wanted to do, um, and that's that's what I did. I I went back to my business partner at the time and I said I want to create a company that deals with. GPS pet tracking and uh, spent a little bit of my time designing this thing, went to Pet Barn, the local pet retailer and uh, sold them on a $2 million contract before the product was even built. And that was the start of it. Right, and yeah. sorry, this year was about? Well, it would have been about 2015. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. and 
that company went from strength to strength for the initial few years until my business partner, yeah, got greedy, I guess, and stole the business off myself and all the other shareholders and wiped everybody out like a year and a half ago, two years ago. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty gutting. I was left bankrupt virtually and, and homeless um, and then had to start all over again having just signed a contract with a company, a little company called Vodafone for- Never heard of them. Yeah, yeah, just a small telco. Yeah, Vodafone in, in Europe decided they wanted these GPS trackers right about the time that he stole the company. So, so what was that worth? About 15 million. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, you know, everybody gets their, their share in life and he was never happy with his, his holding in the company you know, this is what happens, right? I mean, he wiped out the founder and sent the business completely under. I mean, it's now being liquidated because he couldn't he couldn't deliver. You know, you can't steal a company and still maintain contracts and relationships mm. with people and eventually, you know, the, the company's gone under as a result. It's a damn shame because it was a great product. Yeah, he probably, um probably lacked you know that he probably lacked the passion of that initial idea and stuff as well like he's only ever in it for the money by the sounds of it well the way I look at it is you cannot you cannot make a success of anything that you aren't approaching in the right way with the right mentality you know if your objective is just to make money there's plenty of ways you can do that but the one way you'll never, ever achieve that is by taking over something that isn't yours, that hadn't got the, how do I put this? You can never take something that somebody else's that's been built with their ethos mentality mm -hmm. and then try and think that you're gonna take over and make a, a money beast out of it. I mean, you know, we've seen it time and time again in the real world, uh, you know, with people like Steve Jobs and Apple, and I'm not certainly not comparing myself to Steve Jobs or, or Apple, but you know, th that was a company founded with passion and taken over by somebody who was just trying to get dollars through the door. Yep. And we all know the story, right? I mean, it, the company was virtually bankrupt before Steve Jobs came back into the fold and rectified the situation. And my, my journey with Pod was certainly not comparable in terms of scale uh, to that situation, but very much so in, in terms of the passion was. You know, I started the company with a passion for helping people avoid the pain that I'd been through by mm. losing my cat. And uh, it was taken over by somebody who was just obsessed with percentages and, and numbers, which doesn't inspire anybody. You can't yeah. sell anything yeah. unless you can inspire them. So, yeah, it all went to, to, to ship. So there's no heart behind it? No, no, no heart, no passion, so no results. You were, left, you were left in a pretty bad position at the end of pod? Yep. Because I've had... I've had a number of conversations with you about that. Um, yeah, tens of thousands of dollars in debt. And so um, let's talk about that. Homeless. How did you 
how did you start to dig yourself out of that hole? Uh, well, I came back from the States to see my company in tatters, having spent my time over there trying to rectify you know, aspects of the business that we were running over there. And I came back to, to a situation where my business partner was very hostile and, and in the process of executing his plan. Um, I was left without a home. I had to give up my cat, Smokey. Um, and yeah, I mean, I was, I was homeless and tens of thousands of dollars in debt, scratching my head as to how I was actually gonna make it through and pay all my bills. Um, I was still being paid by pod at this time, but it wasn't enough to cover the interest of the debts that were there mm. from trying to keep everything going. Um, and so thankfully, I was rescued by uh, one of my very good friends, a guy called Brent and his wife Cass, who offered to put me up in their house for eight months, or as long as it took is what they told me at the time. They said, you can stay here and we'll look after you. And so they did. They stayed there until I could get my debt level under control um, because I never wanted to declare bankruptcy. I mean, there's two things that I will never, never do in my life. One, is which, one of which is never pay my debts. I always pay my debts. And I never want to claim the dole. You know, as long as I've got two working hands and a mind mm. that's functional, I, I feel like I should look after myself as best as I can. So yeah, they um, they looked after me in, in the sense of providing me with a, a house to live in or a, a roof over my head and I, you know, worked my ass off to pay off as much of the debt as I possibly could. Uh, in the end, I discovered that I could make quite a bit of money by using some of my skills to pick stuff up from the streets in council cleanup, uh, refurbish it, clean it up, and, and sell it on to people that were in, in need of those items. I found it quite enjoyable work because I was sort of rescuing stuff from being thrown into the landfill. And, um, you know, it was sort of a fun way to make a living driving around, you know, enjoying the Sydney weather, picking up all sorts of items from flat screen TVs to couches to yeah. Did you is it did you buy the bus for three dollars or something like that? I nearly bought a bus for three dollars, yeah. There was a bus that was being auctioned off. Yeah, because I didn't just do the uh, the council cleanup, there was also these these auctions that I'd go to, you know, for storage lockers, abandoned storage yeah. lockers. Like storage wars on TV, so essentially I lived out my dream of being a picker because one of my favourite shows for a while was American Pickers, and the other one was, you know, Storage Wars. Right. So I kind of lived out this dream. I of, don't know why we bothered talking about startups and sailing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We should be talking about <laughs> inspiring trash TV. Yeah, well, it was <laughs> it was kind of a fascinating period because I ended up doing what I sort of always watched on TV, thinking that would be so cool. And I ended up with this van and I was driving around picking up all this stuff off the street, selling it to other people, some of which was hilarious, you know. I remember picking up something off the street, 
and I'd take a photo of it and list it up on Facebook Marketplace. And I actually sold something to the next door neighbor of a guy who'd thrown it out. What? Um, so, yeah, it was uh, it was sort of weird, but um, yeah, I had a, a, a sort of great time doing that and, and, and flipping these storage lockers I'd go and buy for uh, bugger all money. I'd take over all the possessions inside the, the locker and then sell it on, and one of which was, was at one point I nearly bought a, um, a bus for $3. Turned up there with a mate, checked it all out. We even got the the engine running. Um, mechanic friend of mine, so we sort of spent a little bit of time tinkering with it. Got this engine running. Nice. Uh, to the shock of the the guy in the storage. So, uh, what size bus was it? Oh, it was like a thirty foot bus from. Uh, I can't I can't even remember the year now. Uh, I think it was the same bus they used in that famous Australian film. No. Um, Priscilla Queen of the Desert. Yeah, same model. Same like model. Like an old Bedford or something. Um, oh god, I can't even remember the make, but it's it's the same same bus, it's the same style of bus. Of the only you'll have to I'll have to look say, it up, You know when you mm. say things like retro buses and stuff yeah. like that, and you've got like this image of the American shaped school bus. Yeah, yeah. Well, that would have been awesome. I would have got one of those in a heartbeat. Yeah, I know. But isn't that funny how you say bus and my image of a bus is that yeah. retro American thing? But it was actually Priscilla Queen of the Desert bus. And I'm just trying to I'm trying to shake that mental bias and go yeah. what shape bus was it <laughs> anyway yeah well it was it was that exact style of bus uh, in fact I think it was the same model but not obviously the one from the movie were they throwing in drag queens as well oh, not bus? that I was aware of and certainly okay. the inside was completely stripped out I mean I right. was just going to turn it into this like awesome tiny home and then sell it off yeah it, nice it was the vision but um, another yeah. friend of mine's I think I think they're building a tiny home in the back of like a transport or not a transport. Yep. Yeah, they're stripping yeah, yeah. it out, putting insulation and stuff in a it. Transit van. Transit van, yeah. maybe a transit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the bigger. Yeah, bigger got Ford. Like Two hundred fifty thousand Ks on the clock already. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think those people things go forever, don't they? People do it. I mean, uh, when I was in the US, I actually was living out of a um, a nineteen seventy seven Ford Econoline three fifty. So this thing, this thing had a 5.6 liter V8 engine, um, yeah, big Ford V8 engine, and uh, I built the whole thing so it looked like a yacht in the inside, you know, this sort of luxury <laughs> wood paneled, white piping interior, uh, but the outside just looked like an A-team van. I mean, it was like matte black, but it was painted with chalkboard paint, so you could draw all over it with these massive chalks I had. And what um, would you what would you put on the side of it? Oh, all sorts of stuff. I mean, we did a whole uh, deck hour one one time of one of the road trips I did through, uh, you know, the sort of uh, west coast of America. We we did this whole you know trip up into uh, you know, Utah and California and Arizona. So we did this massive deck hour with you know kind of an up theme with you know adventurers out there all scribbled on the side. It was it's pretty cool. Yeah. Nice. If you're stalking my Instagram, I think there's pictures of it on there. I didn't actually go too far through oh, Instagram. Yeah, yeah wouldn't. Uh, I got, um, I got seriously envious of the amount of good times you're having on your boat, and I'm like, my soul yeah. can't take this anymore. I'm quitting. <laughs> I'm quitting. I don't want to. I don't want to talk to Seb anymore. Yeah. So did you end up selling the five thousand condoms? Oh, or the did condoms. you get rid of those? Yeah. How did you no, even uh, get those in the yeah. first place? The condoms. Was that part of the same shtick or? No, the condoms uh, came about because of Lloyd, my, my very good 
startup friend Lloyd, who got me into this whole startup world. He, um, when I first met him, was running a company called Big Richard, uh, Big Richard Condoms, which was a, a condom brand, but sort of amassed some, some success here in Australia, but never quite got itself off the ground. Never quite got up. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lacked a bit of uh, oomph. Um, but look, he, 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 he still to this day is probably one of my most inspiring characters because, you know, he's just so persistent. Yeah. And has so much uh, stickability when it comes to, um, you know, enduring tough times. I mean, this guy has been, you know, working on some of his startups for so long and just refuses to, to give in. Um, and I love that quality about him. He's, he's uh, an incredibly smart, funny guy and enormously tall. I think his atmosphere is slightly different from mine, but been one of my very good friends for such a long time. And he, he ran this company called Big Richard Condoms. I ended up being in one of his uh, adverts for it, um, which now has about 500,000 views on, on YouTube. Um, it, it was terrific at the time until I got landed with sort of 450,000 condoms in my garage, which, uh, you know, I've been slowly trying to get rid of <laughs> now down to 150,000. So what if anybody's out there like and needs some condoms, you know, just... How did, what did I think it was 5,000? Uh, no, I was trying to sell them for $5,000. Oh, um, But right. yeah, yeah. So there's 150,000 condoms, yeah. I mean, if it was 5,000, man, I'd probably just keep them and keep use them. Keep them for your own stash. But um, yeah, no, it's 150,000. It's a bit more than I need. That's, in the short term. I mean, we talk about growth yeah. and you know, yeah. being honest with ourselves. And it's good that you can be honest that you probably won't go through 100,000 <laughs> condoms. Yeah. Well, I hope not. I mean, things will probably be pretty worn out by then. But um, no, it's it's a lot, a lot of condoms. But, you know, I'm one of these people that I, I don't want to see them go to waste. I don't want to see them just thrown in landfills. I'd rather just try and um, move them on, sell them to somebody who can make some money off them. So... Um, you know, I'm trying to recoup some of the money that's cost me to store them in the in the garage because space space equals dollars in, mm -hmm. in my world, um, and and yeah, so I'm trying to offload the last of them and then get ready to, to head off out to sea for two years. So you you were saying was it Lloyd got you into startups because you had normal office jobs before getting into startups, didn't you? Well, not not that many. No, I um. So when I left university, I, I actually went into flipping houses and uh, delivering yachts around Europe. Right. I then ended up uh, in America and I rebuilt or refurbished a boat. And then when I got to Australia, got my first office job when I was 26, 27, something like that. Wow. And I went into a sales role. I, you know, had some sales experience or knowledge from my father, who was a, a brilliant salesman. And within a, a number of months, I'd outsold most of the team that I was working with. Um, and then I came up with a concept of how to sell better. I see. Um, 
and that's where Winbox Winbox came about. Um, I, I I witnessed you know having this mentality of discounting, discounting, create more sales, discount, 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 and of course to me um, it, it just led to a confusion within people's minds as to where the value of any particular product actually sat mm. and observing under the, the few retailers and, and people who didn't discount and, and seeing how they were performing against you know these stores that seemed to drop their price by 50, 60, 70 percent mm. at, at times like Christmas um, kind of fascinated me I mean you only have to walk past uh, you know any sort of department store if you see an Apple store next to any other stores it's almost embarrassing mm. like if you there's a great place in, in Chatswood Chatswood Chase where I used to work mm -hmm. and if you go in through the entrance there's a there's actually an Apple store on your left hand side and you can just see this Apple store wedged between these other stores I know and, the one and yeah. they're barren yeah and Apple is just Packed, mm. absolutely packed. And I used to go there every day and get some lunch and what whatnot else. And I used to see this scene every day. And I thought, why are these guys rammed mm. every day? I'd be like, they're rammed. They've never discounted. They've never had a sale. They've never dropped a penny off their price at all on any of their products or any of their or any of their like other distributors and yeah. stuff. There, right? And yet they are slammed every day I mean the store looks like there's a party going on mm -hmm. compared to the other stores they've also door. got a freaking amazing product for sure but you know then you start to scratch your head and you go well right this is a retailer that never discounts why are they never discounting one because they've got a desirable product well why have they got a desirable product they've got a desirable product because they've never discounted they've kept the price point where it is so their profit margins been maintained so they can afford the R&D and development needed to ensure that their products are of top quality, stupidly desirable, mm. really well marketed and designed, right? They know where the value is. Yeah, well, you, you look at any situation of any product, any brand, once you start chipping away at the profits, what suffers first is the marketing budget and then the R&D budget, and eventually what you end up with is a brand that struggles to reinvent themselves and struggles to market themselves properly because they can't afford the R&D needed to get their products to where they need to be mm -hmm. and they can't afford the marketing dollars to promote themselves how they should be. Mm. And that's why I came up with this, this new sales concept of avoiding the discounting situation entirely but still provide a buying incentive for the consumer and so I just looked at the whole sales situation and said, well, what if you could combine all the good things about gambling <laughs> without, you know, the excitement, <laughs> the fun. I know it sounds crazy, but it, it, it's, it's what it is, right? You take all the good elements from gambling and you combine them with shopping, but throw away all the bad stuff. So let's, let's take what's great about gambling, gambling. right? <laughs> it's fun, it's exciting. There's highs, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, I'm not and there's, there's winning, right? Yeah. So all of that's all positive, all good stuff. So what's the bad thing about gambling? It's the loss. So what if we took out the loss? Addiction. And, and, and addiction side and threw that out the window, right? And we just took all the good stuff and we combined it with 
the product that you want, right? And that's what I did. I approached it entirely differently. I said, well, let's take a product. Let's say it's $100, mm-hmm. right? It's a product that you want. Rather than the discount being applied by the retailer and saying, hey, we're going to drop the price from $100 to $50, right? Let's just give the consumer a 50-50 chance of paying absolutely nothing for the product, uh, right? They commit to paying $100, Yeah. but if they are fortunate enough to be the right person within the sequence of events, yeah. they can walk away with that product for free. But they've committed to the $100, so in their mind, the product's worth $100, they just happen to have won it. So one of the things I discovered doing this yeah. is that the mindset of somebody who's won something yeah. versus something somebody who saved some money is entirely different. Mm. If I come into a store and I pay $100 or I expect to pay $100 and I end up winning that product for free, mm-hmm. my mindset is best day of my life. I'm going to get that <laughs> yeah, yeah. and I'm going to get that. Because winning something is much more exciting than giving them a 50% discount and watching them walk out having saved $50. We actually boosted sales by 283% without discounting a penny. Wow, so this is where um, this is where Rango comes into the mix. Yeah, so during that, that time when we were running this company. It sounds like it was a pretty exciting product, right? Yeah, look, I, I, it's something I definitely want to, to, to go back to um, when the time is right. Uh, so during this time that I was running this company, that's when Rango went missing and uh, yeah, that that sort of provoked the whole change in strategy for me at least because the pain and loss of losing Rango was quite significant. But at the same time, you know, I, I have to recognise that what I was doing was pretty cool mm. um, and, you know, it, it's Einstein who said, if you do the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. That's the definition of madness. Yeah, it's the definition yeah. of insanity. Yeah. And yet, you know, you look at retailers, they do the same thing every bloody year. Yeah. They discount their products and then they cry about it mm. in the media, about how sales are down, yeah. about how they can't get, you know, people to buy, how the environment in the high street is no good, mm-hmm. how people are going online more and more, you know, with the same old sob stories every mm. year, but they're doing the same stupid thing yeah. every single year. Yeah, in time, I'll, I'll definitely go back to, to that that, uh, that concept and, and retweak it and, and relaunch it. What's, uh, what's one piece of, advice, piece of advice you'd give a startup founder? One, one piece of advice for a startup founder. Um, well, I quite often say that the trick to succeeding in a startup or persevering in a startup is an hour a day. One hour every day can change your life. Because ultimately, that's all it takes. You see, the difference between the people who make it and the people who don't is perseverance, right? Some people almost all people have an idea in their life where they go yeah this is a really cool business idea mm-hmm. and some people that's as far as they get the cool business idea and they might tell a few friends about it but they never devote any time to it 
to actually make it work. Mm. It's just an idea. And then you get uh, a different set of people who take it one step further. You know, they, they might, you know, do a little bit of research and spend a little bit of time. You know, they might buy a domain name, or, you know, set up a company or, mm. you know, or register a company name or something. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll do that little bit more, but they sort of run out of steam within a few weeks because life takes over and, you know, that's sort of a f as far as it gets, right? And then you've got those who get a bit further and, you know, they, they might persevere enough to see the product go live or see the idea come into the real world, but, you know, they never take that leap from this is kind of a side thing to actually, I need to dedicate some time to this and actually make it work, or mm. I need to go out there and raise some money and do it properly. And those that make it all the way just, I mean, they just don't quit, mm. right? They're just not quitters. Doesn't matter how hard it gets. I mean, Jesus, I've been homeless. I've literally picked rubbish off the streets and pulled myself out of the gutter by selling those products to, to people who probably had no idea where they came from, but you know, still loved it because it's what they wanted. But you know, I've literally come from the gutter back to you know doing all right because I just refuse to give up. Mm -hmm. I don't care that I live in a garage. No. You know, I've just made the most of it. You know. But there are a lot of people out there who can't fathom the idea of sacrificing any of their life. And that's cool, that's, that's great. I mean, if you don't want to sacrifice, that just means you're not the type of person that could do it. Yeah, be comfortable in that sort of, just be comfortable in that yeah. sort of environment. Yeah, and I see it time and time again. I mean, my, one of the biggest uh, traits that I noticed in my, my ex-business partner over time, over the two businesses that I, I engaged with him in was the fact that he never was prepared to sacrifice he would never want to put skin in the game other than his own sweat right other than his own time and efforts mm. but that's not enough if you're not prepared to sacrifice you can't expect the reward you can't just devote a bit of time and go oh you know that's fine you know that you're being paid for mm. right it's more than that. I mean, you've got to be prepared to go down on one knee if you want to, you know, jump up in the air. And if you're not prepared to go down on one knee or end up flat on your face, mm. then really, I don't know if you've got the sort of salt that you need to, to be jumping up in the air celebrating a win, mm. right? I mean, it's the same in everything. Sports, you know, startups, life, you know, it's all the same, you know, the greatest athletes, they are certainly prepared to go down on one knee. I mean, some of them half kill themselves with training to be the mm. best. And the startup world's no different. It's about persevering. And, and why I say one hour a day is because that's really all it takes. You just spend one extra hour a day and you're efficient with your time. You'd be surprised how much you actually progress forward. And it's not to say that an hour a day is all it takes, but certainly if you pace yourself, you end up with a better result. It's a marathon that you've just got to stick out, right? Yeah. What's the one thing that sailing has taught you? One thing. 
how to weather a storm. Yeah. Highs and lows, man. Um, but I know how to bounce back better than most. And I've been through some crazy stuff in my life. Uh, you know, being tortured, you know, been electrocuted, been hung, you know, been through some pretty heavy stuff in terms of oceans and nearly losing my life uh, with boat going down and, um, you know, business partners screwing me over, you know, my own family taking things from me. Um, but I don't know, you just got to keep going and hope that it gets better. It's pretty hard to see that sometimes. Mm. And I've certainly had my low points, but I haven't quit. And I don't, don't think now that I ever will. I mean, there's been times in my past, I'm not entirely proud to say that I've wanted to, because um, it has been pretty tough. But I don't think I ever would have really deep down you know when it came to it and I think now I'm starting to realize more and more that although there's times that I want to stop I just I just never will it's just never going to happen you know my blood's going to keep pumping through my veins until until it, you know everything breaks like I'm just going to go forever and I'm okay with that. You know, I don't care if it means I have to start over a hundred more times. You know, I've, I've sort of come to learn that there'll be a few more sacrifices yet. Mm. And that's cool. I'm actually happy with being that crazy creator and that mad guy who goes sailing off around the oceans. I mean, that's, it's not conventional life and it's certainly not the life most people would want to live, but I kind of like it. Mm. I do. Thank you. That's all right. You're um, well, you're one of the most resilient characters that I know, and I just am so stoked that you came on and told your story, and um, yeah, shared that with me and with everybody that will listen to this, and um, yeah, it's just such a good story of amazing highs and amazing lows, and freaking digging yourself picking yourself back up yeah. and not giving up like I'm glad you um, were able to share those uh, experiences because yeah there's so many people that need to hear this and yeah it's really admirable so thank you so much for coming on and being part of it my pleasure it's been awesome yeah thanks for your time we've kept you a little bit longer so that's all right Awesome. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Thanks, team. That's See good. Ya. Bye.